Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, where some saw a white table, the mainstream media saw a blockbuster villain on a throne of fear, the terrifying seat of power in Game of Thrones, a towering iron chair forged from the melted swords of defeated enemies. In our One Side to Every Story U.S. Corporate Media Watch episode this week, regarding fear tactics alarming their audiences with Russian schemes and weather forecasts predicting war, and with connections to sexism, repackaged Russian folklore, furniture diplomacy as a tool to intimidate, and James Bond shark aquarians decor. RT's Danny Armstrong ferrets out the fake news. Western media is jumping on the anti-Russia bandwagon, speculating on Moscow's motives at every opportunity. Hartie's Danny Armstrong takes a look at the most garish examples. The old saying goes, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Well, that's definitely not the case with Western mainstream media, who strain their eyes and ears to detect malice and militancy in everything that Russia says or does, almost without exception. And that goes doubly so for when one Vladimir Putin is concerned. Who can forget the president's quotes on beauty in talks with Emmanuel Macron? Kiev says they will comply with the Minsk agreements. Then they say that this will destroy their country. And the current president recently said that he doesn't like any of the clauses. Whether you like it or you don't like it, bear with it, my beauty. You have to comply. The Russian leader's tough guy talk is sometimes explained away as a sort of foxiness that is a performance for a domestic audience. But Putin's choice of verb terpit in his remarks on Monday to take it or to endure shows an ugly underlying sentiment about the role of women. Plucked from Russian folklore, Putin's words were pulled apart and repackaged as misogyny and ugly machismo. Talk about beauty being in the eye of the beholder. As for the setting where some saw a white great table, MSM saw a blockbuster villain on a throne of fear. For those at the top, decor and furniture can be tools to impress, charm, and intimidate. The terrifying seat of power in Game of Thrones is a towering iron chair forged from the melted swords of defeated enemies. In the James Bond series, villains are known for decorating their headquarters with shark aquariums. In real life, however, there is Vladimir Putin and his confusingly massive white table. Then there was the West's blind faith in a Russian invasion of Ukraine. You remember, the imminent one that never actually turned up. Russia could launch an attack on Ukraine any day now. Russian invasion of Ukraine would be horrific. That was despite Ukraine's president himself actually saying the exact opposite. But that, as usual, fell on deaf ears. Do we have tanks on the streets? No. When you read media, you get the image that we have troops in the city, people fleeing. That's not the case. I'm the president of Ukraine, and I'm based here, and I think I know the details better here. This outright refusal to listen resulted in mainstream news broadcasts turning into weather forecasts. Rasputitz is the term for the mud of spring, when travel in Russia and Ukraine by road becomes more difficult. Usually its impact is most felt in March, as the snows begin to melt. Military analysts are debating whether a continuation of the mild winter might affect any plans for an offensive. So do they actually think Putin would invade on horseback? Well, that could also be the reason why diplomacy between the Kremlin and the UK got stuck in the same mud. Maybe it explains why Liz Truss, Britain's foreign secretary, views the world on a murky map which places Baltic states on the Black Sea. We're also supplying and offering extra support into our Baltic allies across the Black Sea. And randomly annexes Russian regions. You do recognize Russia's sovereignty over the Rostov and Voronezh regions, don't you? The United Kingdom will never recognize Russian sovereignty over those regions. So as for seeing and hearing and speaking no evil, when the world is seen through a Western media-tinted lens and geography isn't their strong point, on this backdrop, Russia's top diplomat says it's hard to get through to Western counterparts. I'm disappointed that we seem to have dialogue between a mute and a deaf person. They seem to be listening but don't hear. And 
next on Arts Express on the occasion of both Black History Month and its most eminent historical figures and the birthday this week on February 23rd, a glimpse into the more personal side of political historian, civil rights activist, socialist, pan-Africanist, and author and writer W.E.B. Du Bois, namely the mental and psychological challenges and scars of surviving racist America as a black man. What you'll hear is an animated production from an 1897 article penned by Du Bois, How Does It Feel to Be a Problem?, and adapted from Strivings of the Negro People. Between me and the other world, there is ever an unasked question. Unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it. Instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent colored man in my town. Or, do not these southern outrages make your blood boil? At these I smile, or reduce the boiling to a simmer, as the occasion may require. To the real question, how does it feel to be a problem, I answer seldom a word. And yet, being a problem is a strange experience. It dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others, shut out from their world by a vast veil. For the world I longed for and all its dazzling opportunities were theirs, not mine. Why did God make me an outcast and a stranger in mine own house? It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at one's self through the eyes of others. One feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro. Two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In the days of bondage, they thought to see in one divine event the end of all doubt and disappointment. Slavery was, indeed, the sum of all villainies, the cause of all sorrow, the root of all prejudice. Emancipation was the key to a promised land of sweeter beauty than ever stretched before the eyes of wearied Israelites. Years have passed away, ten, 20, 30. And yet, the freed man has not yet found in freedom his promised land. Merely a stern concrete test of the underlying principles of the great republic is the Negro problem. And the spiritual striving of the freedmen's sons is the travail of souls whose burden is almost beyond the measure of their strength, but who bear it in the name of an historic race, in the name of this, the land of their fathers' fathers, and in the name of human opportunity. And thank you, director and animator Tynesha Foreman and the narrator William Demerit. And coming up next, The Automat, about the history and the memories of that fable chain, a conversation with filmmaker Lisa Hurwitz and what it has to do with bean soup Mel Brooks and slices of lemon meringue pie. Some people just adore martinis, others love iced tea. In Venice, they all go for bellinis, but coffee, ah, that's for me. I've tasted every kind of brew. At every coffee shop. As a boy, I was mystified. I became a merchant the day that I was in that automat. But this one was the top. There was nothing like the coffee at the automat. Right, the silverware, here come the actors. It was right near the theaters, and the food was so fresh. From a silver dolphin spout, the coffee poured right out. Not to mention, at the end, a little spurt of cream. There was nothing like the Hi, this is Jack Shalom. When I was a child, my father took me to Shangri-La, 
a beautiful high ceiling building filled with people sitting at tables, and the walls were made up of scores of little windowed cabinets filled with slices of lemon meringue pie or coconut cream pie or bean soup or dozens of other treats. And if you put your nickels into the magic slot, the window popped open and it all could be yours. You took your slice of pie out of the window and magically someone behind the wall would replace the slice of pie with yet another piece. Of course, those of you who remember New York City of the 60s and 70s or even earlier know I'm talking about the automat. Our guest today has made a nostalgia-filled film documentary called The Automat about the history and memories of that fabled New York City restaurant chain. I'm happy to welcome as my guest, filmmaker Lisa Hurwitz. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Lisa, as Mel Brooks asked you, whatever made you want to do a film about The Automat? Well, at the time that all this began, I was a college student and I was very enamored by my own school cafeteria where I ate a lot and had a very nice time meeting new people. And it was a, it was just a, a wonderful place to go. And, and so I was a 35 millimeter projectionist at the time at a art house movie palace. And it just sort of fused two of my interests. I was interested in film and I was interested in cafeteria history. So when I learned about the automat in my school library, that was mm-hmm. kind of the the beginning of, of all this. As it's mentioned in the movie, uh, the automat was kind of a tourist destination in New York City on a par of with the Statue of Liberty. You've done a lot of research on them, and I'm sure you've seen lots and lots of photos. What would you see when you first walked into an automat? Well, when you first walked in, you were in this giant, giant space. You would see a lot of commotion. You'd see walls lined with automat windows. You'd see a steam table. You'd see a a counter with a, a nickel thrower. You'd see lots and lots of tables where if if you didn't see an open table, you'd you'd look for an open seat at any table. So there was a very communal feeling. It was a very communal feeling. And as one of our characters says in the film, it was the town square in a way. Let's go back to the beginning here. Where where was the first automat in New York City and how did they begin? The first Horn and Hard Art automat in the US was in Philadelphia in 1902. And in 1912, the company expanded to New York City and opened its first automat in Times Square. Was the Philadelphia restaurant an actual automat, what we would call an automat? So the Horn and Hard Arts in Philadelphia began in the 1880s, and they started out as lunchrooms. They did not have automats in the beginning. The Horn and Hard Art they discovered automats. They learned of them. They were really trending in Berlin in particular. And they brought the first Horn and Harder automat from Germany. They shipped it over. And that's how, that's how that opened in 1902. Eventually, Horn and Harder started manufacturing their own automat machines. But initially, they were, you know, prefabricated fabricated by a German company. And uh, then in the film, we we go through Horn and Hardart's engineering side, and they had an engineer who really made the Horn and Hardart automat its own. And it, it had they came up with the, the specific systems that they needed. And that they were, in fact, pretty sophisticated engineering innovations in the restaurants, weren't they? You you talk about the coffee delivery system. It was extremely revolutionary, the systems that they were creating. And it's part of why they were so successful for so long. The The technology that they were using to keep the cold food cold, the hot food hot, the, the systems they had in place to produce really large quantities of food all in the same place in order to maintain the quality and 
consistency of the food throughout their various locations and to be able to keep costs down and offer low prices. These were the things that were very advanced. And keep in mind, Horn and Hardart was one of the first large chain restaurants in the United States. Well, I mean, I, I remember as a child, as I said at the opening, my dad taking me to these automats, and it was so exciting. And one of the great mysteries to me as a child was what happened behind those glass doors you put in your nickel, and then you got out your slice of pie, and and suddenly the pie would reappear in the little windows. And it was it was like a mystery on a par with how did the little people get inside the television set? Well, nobody's ever put it like that to me, that it was like trying to figure out how the little person got in the television, <laughs> but I really like that a lot. Since I was too young to appreciate the coffee, um, maybe you can fill us in a little bit more because Mel Brooks spoke so highly of the Horn and Hardart coffee. What was it? What was special about it? Well, I can only tell you what people have told me, and that is that it was really tasty and that it came out of these beautiful chrome dolphin spouts. Keep in mind, Horn and Hardart is coming about a very long time ago, and <laughs> coffee had not yet been popularized on the level that it is today. And the French drip coffee method, it was very popular in New Orleans, and Horn and Hardart brought that method to New York and made it real big. The automat became so famous as a symbol of New York that a number of Hollywood films featured the automat as a location. What, what were some of them? So some of the films that featured the automat were Easy Living, That Touch of Mink. That's uh, Who was in Touch of Mink? That was... Touch of Mink is Doris Day. Doris Day, uh-huh. And Cary Grant. Ah, great. There's some Looney Tune cartoons oh that are God. in the film. It's great. <laughs> Mr. 880, The Catered Affair, Radio Days. In the 1990 film Met Metropolitan, they go to the Automat. Who was actually going to the Automats? What class? Uh, what kind of people? All kinds of people would go to the Automat across classes. And that's one of the markers of the Automat and one of the reasons why today we're still talking about the Automat. It was a remarkable mixing space. You didn't necessarily have the billionaires there, although there were some that uh, that were, we know that were there. There were princesses and celebrities who we know went there and you could be anonymous at the automat. Uh -huh. Everybody was there. You say in the film, it's very interesting that in a certain sense, it was women that drove the success of Horn and Hardet initially. Can you talk a bit about that? Women needed a place to go out to eat. And we're talking about a time where previously women needed to be accompanied to dine, where dining was a new thing and proper restaurants were expensive and women were entering the workforce. Women were women who started becoming secretaries and stenographers in offices. They needed some place to eat because they didn't have enough time to go home. The, the work day was sort of a, a new invention and a problem that the cafeteria format was able to solve, it was really created with the woman in mind. Horn and Hardat was known as having a pretty close-knit employee structure. There were company picnics and Christmas parties and family outings and so on. And uh, some people worked there for decades and decades. Uh, but not everybody was happy about it, were they? There were... Uh, union organizing efforts and uh, at Childs and Bickford's uh, other cafeterias, they did have a, a food workers union, but Horn and Hardart management opposed that union vociferously. What what can you tell us about that? Well, Horn and Hardart was like the last of all of the cafeterias to finally 
unionize and they they resisted for such a long time and it was part of their i mean i hate to say it but maybe a part of their success which was why they were able to offer such low prices so they it was a very paternalistic company and you know they wanted to keep the power uh and you know i definitely had heard that the company was really trying to sway the the employees and explain to them why it was not a good idea how did world war ii affect horn and hardart americans were willing to spend more after world war ii they had more it was a time of economic boom and part of what happened was that we spread out and part of what we learned from the you know the horn and hard art system is the more people you have in it the the lower the prices you can offer the higher quality you can maintain and with fewer people putting into the system it it just the whole system collapsed it was a system based on volume and uh-huh. They weren't able to easily scale that back. So the automats started uh, closing one by one. Where was the last automat in New York City, and and when was it closed? That was at 42nd and 3rd near Grand Central, and that automat finally closed. And it was the last one for a very long time, and that closed Mm -hmm. in 1991. And that's the automat where the film Metropolis was filmed. And that automat today is a gap. Well, you you have quite a roster of famous people who are eager to talk about the automat. You, you want to quickly just name some of the famous people that uh, were enchanted by the automat as well? Sure. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Colin Powell, there's Howard Schultz. Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, Elliot Gould. Fantastic. How did you feel when you saw the remains of the automat? How did how did you find that? That was actually our first day of shooting. And no it was not what I was expecting because I thought I was going to see a collection of automats. And I did not know that they were going to be in that condition and Mm. in that type of storage. It was, you know, the dead of winter and, you know, the, the barn that they're in, it's not temperature controlled. It's not, you know, in a way it felt more like a graveyard than (laughs) a preservation tactic, but they had been saved and, you know, they had been spared from, you know, forever disposal. So and so, yeah, no. When I walk, when I walked into the barn, my heart kind of sank. But it was, a, it was, it was tough as someone who who loves the the automat to to see yeah. that. Yeah, but it, it it's a powerful moment in the film because it sort of does bring us face to face with the reality of the past and our nostalgic memories of the past. Well, could the automat make a comeback? Couldn't it be a huge draw again? I mean, I guess everybody who's ever been in an automat you know, wants that or feels that? Well, the Automat was an amazing place. I don't think it's so easy to bring it back because it's gone and, you know, arguably gone forever. I do think that some of the values of the Automat could make a comeback, and I really hope they do. I think they really need to. But, you know, some of those philosophies have to do with offering really good products at really low prices and taking businesses looking out for its customers and offering them something that's good for them. It's about people being in it together and being willing to talk to and sit with and, you know, share their time with one another. I really hope communal dining makes a, a comeback. I think it it's a marvelous thing that is really healthy mm. for society. Lisa, as we wrap up, anything else you'd like to add? 
The film is opening on February 18th. I would maybe I would also add that listeners can check out our screening schedule at automatmovie.com, which is where we list all of our upcoming film festivals and independent cinema engagements. Great. Well, thanks, Lisa. I've been speaking with Lisa Hurwitz, director-producer of The Automat. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And for just a shiny nickel, your taste buds you could tickle with that wonderful, magnificent, unbelievable, awesome coffee at The Automat. And now, in the Arts Express screening room, Recollection Road, Life in America, and a look back at the Automat. In 1902, Joseph Horn and Frank Hardart started the Horn and Hardart Company in Philadelphia. Frank was inspired by European waiterless restaurants, so he purchased equipment out of Berlin, Germany. The ship transporting the equipment sunk during the Atlantic crossing, but Hardart was not deterred. He reordered the equipment and it safely arrived in the United States. Together with his partner, Joseph Horn, Hardart was ready to open his new business. When the Automat restaurant opened in Philadelphia, the public was in awe that they could deposit nickels into a machine and open a door to receive their food. The Automats were lovingly designed Art Deco temples, and they felt futuristic. Sleek steel and glass vending machine grids displayed sandwiches and main dishes, as well as desserts and sides, each in their own little clean and well-lit boxes. Another memorable aspect of the Automats was the interiors, designed to resemble a Parisian bistro. These were essentially fast food restaurants, but they had marble countertops and the floors were accented with stained glass and chrome. Even the coffee was dispensed from silver dolphin spouts sourced from Italy. The Horn and Hardart Automat gave hungry patrons choice, not to mention the satisfaction of seeing exactly what you were about to select and then receiving it instantly. The process felt magical and their business grew. This success in Philadelphia led them to open up the first automat in New York City in 1912. New Yorkers loved the Automat, and Horn and Hardarts began opening up Automats throughout the city. The famous Automat cashiers were lightning fast at dispensing change, because originally the coins were dispensed by hand. They called these women nickel throwers, and the coins tarnished their hands, so they were also required to wear black uniforms in the early years. Automats were not only endless fun for young people, but the concept met a real need at the time. With no wait staff to tip, and with most items priced at a nickel or a dime, Automats appealed to working class and thrifty diners, and had good food that was thoughtfully prepared. The Automat was immortalized in numerous movies, but in the Doris Day and Cary Grant film That Touch of Mink from 1962, you can get a good look at what it was like to dine there. The musical The Producers from 2001 also has scenes set in an Automat.
Horn and Hard Arts were known for their sophisticated restaurants and Art Deco architecture. This was a place where you would meet a friend for a meal, read a newspaper, and enjoy a cigarette. The food was not only good, but also very consistent in taste, so the quality remained every time you visited. The experience of visiting a Horn and Hard Arts became a quintessential New York thing. At its peak, there were 180 locations between New York and Philadelphia. In 1953, the company split up into two separate companies, with the Philadelphia locations becoming the Horn and Hard Art Baking Company. The restaurant chain remained popular into the 1960s, and not only featured automats, but they also added sit-down waitress service. During the 1950s and 60s, a shift away from big city living began, and suburban neighborhoods began popping up. This led to a rise in new restaurants, like drive-ins and other fast food options, so Horn and Hard Arts began to quietly disappear. The last Horn and Hard Arts automat, which had been reduced to a tourist novelty, closed its doors in 1991. Although there have been efforts to revive different versions of the automat, nothing has developed on a large scale. Today, the Horn and Hard Arts name is owned by an online coffee company out of Philadelphia. As we watch the world become a more automated place, with vending machines or kiosks replacing workers, it wouldn't surprise me if somewhere, someplace, there was someone exploring the rebirth of automats because they were very popular places to eat back in the day. And thank you Recollection Road and your YouTube channel for that memory lane excursion back in time. John Savage. If you're, if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Prairie Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. Express. You do this and you're dead. I'm already dead. I've taken lashes my whole life to keep my family safe. But they will never whip my son again. You do this and you're dead. You gotta go. Plantation single handedly killed three of men. I ain't trying to break you down. You might as well give up now. He's smart. They say he's African royalty. They call him Emperor. If you can't take the heat, don't light the fuse. You know why they call me Emperor? Because my granddaddy was a king. In me, I trust you. Say he killed a bunch of white folk. Came here ready to fight on this night. What you bring him here for? Ain't you got no manners? The longer he keeps it up, you got yourselves a rebellion. I need you to be the spark that lights the fuse. Yeah? You better fight for your life. Well, I guess I'm in trouble then. He's a brave man. 
you risk it? You're going to get yourself killed? It's the only way I can free my son. The world, You got to get out of here. You're not just your slave anymore. You're a symbol. You ever consider going the outlaw business? Boy, I got the whole South chasing me. I'm already an outlaw. He was a fugitive slave who had made his escape from Charleston, South Carolina, a state from which a slave found it no easy matter to run away. But Shields Green was not one to shrink from hardships or dangers. He was a man of few words, and his speech was singularly broken, but his courage and self-respect made him quite a dignified character. John Brown saw at once what stuff Green was made of, and Green easily believed in Brown and promised to go with him wherever he should be ready to move. Shields Green, one of the bravest of his soldiers. And those were the words of Frederick Douglass, a likewise towering political figure in African-American history, whose birthday is celebrated this week as well on February 20th. And in speaking of Shields Green, the unsung revolutionary whose history fighting side by side with John Brown is buried as is the biopic about him, Emperor, among the best and most unrecognized film of the year before last, and a film produced and directed by Reginald Hudlin, of the creatively and politically groundbreaking Hudlin Brothers, who is our guest on the show. Hudlin will tell us why films like Emperor are important for him to embrace, and his current production series, which he directs, Fat Tuesdays about yet another forgotten moment in African-American history, the struggle of black comics to be seen and heard in the aftermath of the L.A. Uprising of 1992 on this 30th anniversary of the uprising. To find out what the cultural movement was all about and why, here's some of Fat Tuesday's then Reginald Hudlin talking about, quote, a story that needed to be told an important part of the history of black entertainment in this country, launching a whole generation of black comedians, and what it has to do with the L.A. Uprising, Eddie Murphy, Tupac, Snoop Dogg, the Lakers, Dave Chappelle, and Prince. You are now about to witness... I got a story to tell. This is a story. It's a little story I got to tell. The three police officers facing felony criminal charges were among a group of 15 who stopped a 25-year-old black man last Saturday night. What would you say if I told you that Rodney King was responsible for the career of Nick Cannon? Nick Cannon was discovered at Fat Tuesdays. Kevin Hart. It was one of those people you know, like, this dude gonna be a star. Cat Williams. The whole thing about Fat Tuesday was not just who was on stage. It was who was in the audience to see who was on stage. Chris Tucker. I can do whatever I want right here. I can be the expressway there. Guy Tory. So when she comes in to see you, man, it's nothing but sweet talk through that glass, man. Send her away, float, all right? What would you say to that if I said Rodney King was responsible for that? I, I don't really have a, have a thought on it. This is the story of Fat Tuesdays. This is how we do it. Have you ever been so broke that somebody tried to cut you a deal and you still can't quit it? <laughs> in the comedy clubs at that time, in the early 90s, it was very much segregated. You know, they had places where white comics went and places where black comics went. The comedy store before Fat Tuesdays was Caucasian. It was white. Thank you very much. Before Def Comedy Jam, there were no mainstream clubs doing urban nights. When I first started doing comedy in L.A., it was rough. I mean, compared to where white comics had to go to do comedy, to where we had to go. Started doing uh, a room in Van Nuys. One comedian came out and I went back and forth with him. We affectionately called the bucket of blood. And they made me feel like a piece of meat. The bloods would sit on this side of the room and the crips would sit on that side of the room. This guy comes out there with a little denim suit, apple hat on. The truth was that uh, they would all laugh. And I scared him off the stage. I needed counseling after that show. But after the show, everything went back to street code. I, I said, you ain't even funny, nigga. Then they shot up a limo they thought was mine. I'll whoop your ass. 
Now laugh at that. The only place where black comedians could get on stage was at the Comedy Act Theater in South Central. Hollywood producers would come down to see some of the best black talent that was coming up at that time. Oh, the night was popping, baby. Always. Three of the accused officers are acquitted of all charges. You have to be kidding. I was like, burn this down. It's, it's a very, very ugly situation here. My apartment was on Florence in Normandy. Oh, look at that. Terrible. And there's no police presence down here. The guy who threw the brick at the truck driver was someone that I went to school with. Once the riots hit, that was it. You didn't see any of the industry guys come down anymore. Right after the riots, people were scared to go south of Pico because I'm in the hood now, whatever that means. It was a really frightening time for a 17-year-old girl who was living by herself in chaos. And I remember driving through Crenshaw after everything was burned down and actually crying. Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. And then this kid from St. Louis shows up. We were like, who gave this kid the keys to the castle? I come to LA, he don't stay got leather jacket on, got gloves on, he hit Murphy. I had no idea what the guy was doing. The comedy store is right behind me, and it's Fat Tuesday, and it's supposed to be jam-packed inside. They were saying, well, they got a black night at the comedy store. What do you mean a black night? Fat Tuesdays is a black night at the comedy store. Are you sure? We're talking about Tuesday night. Tuesday night is probably the worst night of the week. Who goes out on Tuesday night? Coming to LA, I didn't know where to go. And I heard about the Fat Tuesdays, quote unquote night. Oh man, you gotta go to Fat Tuesdays. It's crazy. It's got Tori's night. Ready or not, here I come. Fat Tuesday said, hey man, I'm gonna have a night and I'm gonna showcase black comedians. I hated seeing uh, particularly African-American comics not getting a lot of work because ever since the riots in 92, a lot of industry people quit going down to the hood to see comedy. I think Comedy Store was probably one of the first white-owned comedy club that had a black night, or as they called it back then, nigga night. Somebody asked me why the chicken crossed the road. I said it's because two niggas was behind that. You can't drink his Pepsi. It's one Pepsi in the refrigerator. Don't drink Daddy Pepsi. It was the first time that black comedy was respected on the other side of Wilshire. Fat Tuesdays was kind of like a birth of comedy for blacks in Hollywood. It was like the only black night you've ever seen. And the energy in the room was so live that it felt like you was in a movie. Where you felt like it was, it, was, it was just like, it was magical. You name the top comedian of the time, they were up in that piece, and that's where they worked out. Put your hands together for my man, Cedric the Entertainer. You know, Fat Tuesday changed the game. It brought the hood to Hollywood. Fat Tuesdays was the Jackie Robinson of the comedy store. It wasn't just an average night of comedy. It was, it was more of an event. I had some fun here tonight. <laughs> First Tuesday of the month, we bring the liveest comics in L.A. I mean, we had everybody from Percy Jones to Suge Knight. From icons to ex-cons. They came to laugh. I mean, you talking about something that started out as one night and turned into a movement. A new national movement towards black comedy. How'd you hear about Fat Tuesdays? How'd you hear about Jesus? <laughs> People told you. It was the way to go. And now here's Reginald Hudlin. Hello. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why was it important to you to come on board as producer and director of Fat Tuesdays about that all-black comedy night beginning back in the 90s to retell the story and that history now? And what can you say about the L.A. uprising back then in 1992 and how black comedy became a coping mechanism to deal with struggles in the L.A. uprising aftermath? Well, I wanted to tell the story of Fat Tuesday because... It's an important part of the history of black entertainment in this country. It's not very well known, which made me uh, more attracted to the story because it was a story that needed to be told, and it's a story with a happy ending. 
you know, is a, a young man out of St. Louis, Guy Torrey, you know, sees a need uh, for the business, for the community. He makes a way out of no way and helps not only himself, but launches a whole generation of comedians out of it. So, uh, and these are, these are people I know. These are people I've been friends with for 20 years. So it was uh, a nothing but a joy uh, to, to, to make it and, you know, and to bring that joy to, to everybody. Your second question, which is uh, about the L.A. uprising, well, that's an integral part of the story. Because uh, at the time in the 90s, um, there weren't a lot of opportunities for black comedians in the mainstream comedy clubs. So what they would do is they would go down to South Central L.A. and perform at a, uh, an amazing club called the Comedy Act Theater. And that's where Robin Harris got his start. That's where Martin Lawrence got his start. Joe Torre got his start. Dale Hughley. A lot of uh, legendary comics. But there was a one-two punch that really hurt that club. One was the, uh, the tragic early death of Robin Harris, who was really the anchor tenant of the club. Uh, and then that being followed by the L.A. Uh, rebellion, which then made the club uh, really hurt the club because the, the, the bookers, the managers, the agents that would come down from Hollywood to South Central were like, uh-uh, we're, not, uh, <laughs> we're not going that far south anymore into South Central. So uh, the club closed, and there really needed to be a new venue uh, for black comedians. So Guy Torrey went to the comedy store, which launched David Letterman, launched uh, Roseanne Barr, all these big stars, and said, hey, I want to do a black night here. And they said, okay, you can have Tuesday. Tuesday? Tuesday's the worst night of the week. Nobody goes to see comedy on Tuesday. No one just goes out on Tuesday. They said, do you want it or not? So he took it, and he turned that club into the hottest night in L.A. Everybody's there. Eddie Murphy's there, and the Lakers are there, and uh, Tupac's there, and Prince is there, and Snoop is there. And, and all that's happening. Uh, all the beautiful people are in the, in the house. And then a whole generation of stars get on that stage, uh, explode, and become, you know, all the movie stars and the TV stars that we know today. Now, one of the episodes you direct, Who Got Next, features Dave Chappelle, quote, breaking down the science of what it takes to be funny. What can you say about Dave Chappelle on that topic and the controversial challenges he's faced and prevailed to stay funny his way? Well, I mean, one of the things we're most excited about, we're talking to the funniest people in the world about the science of comedy. Mm. Uh, and they were all happy to talk about it because for some reason no one asked comedians how do they do it. Mm. And, you know, talking to Dave Chappelle, talking to Steve Harvey, talking to Tony Rock, talking to all these brilliant comedians uh, about their process was to me one of the most fascinating parts of doing the documentary series. Mm. And in the case of Dave Chappelle, you know, he is the epitome of that high-wire act that is comedy. I mean, because it's so entertaining, you know, comedians have the ability to speak truth to power. And he takes bold stances. He takes bold stances uh, with his core audience. He's willing to challenge anybody, you know, in search of, you know, uh, uh, you know both being funny and, you know, uh, being insightful, uh, you know, and that, that's the beauty of what comedy does and what co black comedians do especially mm -hmm. because black comedians, you know, uh, is, is a form of empowerment, is a form of connection, it's a form of creating, um, of, of acknowledging certain realities that we may not hear in any other medium. Um, you know, black comedians, all they need is a microphone. Mm. And they get to, you know, tell a truth that we all can connect to. And I wanted to ask you, you produced one of the most significant and overlooked films of the year before, Emperor, the true story of likewise that historically ignored rebel slave Shields Green, who fought side by side with John Brown. Why was that production important to you to be part of? 
again, you know, I, I, I get attracted to stories that people need to know but haven't already heard. Mm-hmm. You know, the Shields Green story is an amazing story. Anyone yeah. who hears it is blown away. But in the same way, I, I, you know, I did The Black Godfather, my documentary about Clarence Avon, because he was, again, such an integral part of black entertainment, black politics. Um, you know, there's, there's so much, there's so many stories, uh, you know, in our history that need to be told. And I've kind of taken it upon myself to tell those stories. I have the opportunity to do so. So I'm just going to keep doing it. And any last word on Fat Tuesdays? Well, I think there's three things that people will get out of watching Fat Tuesdays. Uh, one of them is they're going to laugh nonstop for three hours. They're going to have mm-hmm. a, a bubble of, of, of laughter uh, popping out their nose. So uh, anybody who wants to have a good time, uh, watch the special. The other thing you're going to feel is inspired. Because when you hear these amazing men and women tell their stories, of how they went from sleeping on couches to being superstars. I don't care who you are, you're going to feel like, wow. And the third thing, you're going to be a little choked up because, you know, we tell some very human, very relatable stories that a lot of people can uh, connect to. So we think if you watch this, this three-part special, you're, you're going you're gonna to have the full range of emotion and you're going to feel like, oh, that was... I, you know, I can't, I can't tell, wait to tell all my friends about it, and I might need to watch that part again. Okay, thank you, Reginald Hudlin, for calling into our show. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Fat Tuesdays is in release on Amazon Prime. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.